0: Welcome to The Developmental, a podcast about the messy, beautiful ways grown-ups grow up. Here, we explore turning the science into the day-to-day practice of adult development in teams, homes, organizations, and life. Today, I'm very, very excited to invite you into a conversation with one of my favorite adult development researchers. One who, perhaps more than any other, has influenced my own work and informed my understanding of the messy, backward-forward nature of human transformation. As it turns out, vertical development is far from linear, and it often looks more like two steps forward, one step backward. Few researchers have articulated this complexity as clearly and compellingly as Valerie Livsay PhD. For more than a decade, Valerie has been thinking about and inquiring into what I believe to be one of the most intriguing phenomena in vertical development – fallback. Fallback happens when we unintentionally revert to a smaller, less complex, less capable form of mind. It describes all of those moments when, despite our best intentions, we show up at our worst. Despite the maturity we know we are capable of under the best conditions, We're simply not able to harness any of that wisdom in the moment. Following a career in higher education in both administration and faculty roles, Valerie's present endeavors seek to extend the concepts and experiences that she studies, teaches and writes about outside of the halls of academia, into the lives of all people trying to navigate the tricky business of showing up in alignment with their intentions in the many contexts of their world as Chief Illuminator at Ghost Light Leadership. And we'll talk about why Ghost Light? There's a beautiful story behind that name. Valerie accompanies individuals through their discovery of self, using the analogy of theater, to set the stage for their historical and unfolding story. She serves as documentarian, bringing to light the lesser-known, lesser-loved and occasionally even forgotten roles and scenes that make up one's full ensemble and storyline. Through her writing, speaking, coaching and workshop offerings, Valerie invites the many characters that comprise the full ensemble of one's self to dance together in order to better meet their intentions. We will chat quite a bit about the characters making up our complex identities and you will have the opportunity to explore some of your own. Valerie is the author of a wonderful book called Leaving the Ghost Light Burning, Illuminating Fallback in Embrace of the Fullness of You, in which she reveals both the despair and the ecstasy that accompany a knowing of the fullness of oneself through the stories of four individuals and their experiences of fallback. This longitudinal study which was never actually intended to be a longitudinal study allows the reader to find the fullness of themselves in the journey of development and in the experience of being human. Valerie earned her bachelor's degree from Indiana University. She holds a master's degree in not-profit leadership and management and a PhD in leadership studies from the University of San Diego valerie lives in san diego california with her two cats husband and two children with the latter three serving simultaneously as the most frequent protagonists of and audience to her experiences of fallback and the greatest source of her desire to do better i share this desire to do better as a mother and a wife with valerie and you'll hear us talking quite a bit about the way our work has impacted our lives and What she is learning has been learning from her own study of fallback and I have been lucky to learn from her and hoping that her work is going to permeate the world and get to more and more of you, getting you reflecting on your own mechanisms of fallback and ways to grow from it. So without further ado, let's jump in. Hello, Valerie, and welcome on The Developmental. It's so great to have you with me today. It's so great to be here with you, Alice. It's uh, It's been a long, long time coming, um, I feel, this conversation. Um, I've been uh, following your work for a long time, and uh, it's been great connecting a while back and starting to share stories about growth and fallback and life and it's wonderful to finally bring these stories to others outside of our little conversation bubble yes well i've enjoyed
1: um our conversation bubble but yes it's always fun to expand it it's funny when we have those individual conversations it's like this would be really great to share with others so now we now we are
0: yeah, the the one thing that was hard for me to uh, kind of zoom in on as I was getting ready for this conversation was to decide what to focus on, because I think there's so much we could um, actually talk about. But uh, I would love to start with uh, the with beginning, uh, which was the beginning for me as I discovered your work some years back, and, and it's changed a lot the way I understand human growth and development. And that is this uh, one big word called fallback. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. and I, I'll, I'll let you, uh, perhaps share with us what, what fallback is as you, as you understand it and how, how have you, you know, come across this concept? Why were you drawn to it and why mm-hmm. did it become the focus of your work and research?
1: Yeah. Um, well, gosh, I encountered adult development theory and constructive developmental theory specifically. Gosh, back in 2008, I was in the very beginning of my doctoral program at the University of San Diego, and one of the required courses was adult development. And so I actually learned all sorts of different theories about adult development and was really enthralled by the stage theory specifically because I could. Uh, map my own journey of development throughout my life so clearly and and also kind of look forward to what may come next. And it just felt gratifying to be able to see myself in a theory. Um, but what I saw in, in the theory wasn't exactly um, a perfect mapping of my experience because the theory really Um, lays out this forward, this onward, upward, stairway to heaven type experience of development and that we're in this constant stage of, and I shouldn't even say constant because it's actually not constant. It is slow and halting at some points. And, and the theory does lay that out clearly that we do not just jump from one stage up to the next. It does take some time, but, but it was onward and upward. It was, um, once you've acquired a set of capacities or perspectives or options or tools for making sense of the world and yourself in it, then you have those at the ready all the time. And I knew that I did not have those ready at the ready all the time. In fact, there were many times in the course of a day when I did not have access to what in the field we talk about as the center of gravity of our development um, to me, what it felt like was if the birds are chirping and the sun is shining and the breeze is blowing, then I have access to this center of, of gravity um, ideal way of making sense of the world and like your
0: most mature self the the best version of you Mm. yes
1: my yes my biggest and best is is in those moments but those moments don't happen all the time and really I found myself sinking um uh, into a smaller space sometimes just a little bit smaller but sometimes extremely smaller than what my developmental stage would suggest that that I would have access to. And so I thought, my God, am I an anomaly? (laughs) Am I the only one experiencing this? And of course, I'm not. I mean, we all experience that, but I couldn't find it in the The literature. And so very early on, I set out to explore this concept of fallback, this idea of when we are not able to make sense to act, to feel, to behave um, from our ideal, most complex stage of development that we had access to even just a a moment before. And and I, I had the great fortune of um studying this with Bill Torbert who is actually one of the you know founders one of the developers of the theory to begin with and he pointed me in the direction of David McCallum who had just completed his own research study where he found um, evidence of uh, empirical evidence of fallback in 18 of his research participants, which is all of his research participants who were measured all along the developmental spectrum. So from our uh, less less complex conventional way of meaning of the world, but also to the more complex systems framing um, post-conventional stages. So all along the spectrum, people were experiencing fallback. And I just became more and more fascin- fasc- fascinated by it theoretically back then and continued to study it over the years.
0: Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. And I relate to so much of what you're sharing, because for me, coming across your work has, has been an answer to that nagging question around, why can't I be wise sometimes when I most want to be? But for mm. some reason, um, under stress and under pressure, I catch myself just reverting, regressing to yes. very immature behaviors. And it sometimes happened that I could see what I was doing, but couldn't stop myself. And, and I found that in my clients. And later on, when I got into research and I looked at leaders going through long form developmental programs and actually regressing. Um, interestingly enough, I did my own uh, PhD research in 2020 when the context of the pandemic threw a lot of people into fallback. So people were yes. talking about losing their sense of perspective, losing their capacity to actually rise above the fray and kind of mm. you know, um, see the broader picture and so on. So, and, and I, I love that you gave, um, gave a word and gave um, a map to make sense mm-hmm. of this super unpleasant, super difficult experience, which in my own experience, we kind of want to push under the rug. We don't really want to look at our moments of fallback. And, and I was wondering if you experienced that yourself as kind of, you know, treating this as <laughs> some, a problem to be solved um, rather than an opportunity to be pursued. Um,
1: hi, I, I hear you sister. I mean, this everything that you just <laughs> said. Yes. Um, I think my first reaction often when I am in fallback is, um, to blame other people and say, Oh, it's their fault that I'm doing this, that I can't show up in the way that I intend to. And then, um, a period of time later and sometimes that is very quickly and sometimes I need a night to sleep on it you know like sometimes it takes more time then I'll, it'll show up as shame within me like self-shame that why could I not bring myself in the way that I intended to the fullness of myself meaning and when I say fullness there what I really want to bring in those moments is like the 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 ideal self. Um, And so in that way, I do think it's kind of what you're saying about this problem to be solved. How can I bring my ideal self more of the time? And certainly that's where I think I started when I explored fallback. Um, Theoretically, I was like, how can we this isn't accounted for explicitly in the literature, in the theory. And so I want to this is a ragged edge in what we understand and I'm going to go in and I'm going to tidy it up by understanding this fallback phenomenon and I'm going to get all these answers and then I'm going to put a perfect bow on it and and what I thought that looked like was going to be we're going to figure out what fallback is so that we can ban it from our lives you know like we can get beyond it it's not going to have a grip on us anymore and when I came to because I'm a slow learner, it took me about five years, (laughs) Um, maybe even longer, was that we're not going to get rid of our fallback. We are not. And you know what, we don't want to either, because it's an integral part of us. And it is protecting something in us that we value that feels at risk, that we've not given attention to or that there's a part of us that fears we won't. And so It's, it's not about locking that part of self out of the room or out of our lives or out of our being really the fullness that I want us to, to bring that I want to bring is to take into consideration that smaller part of self and also my intentions for how I show up in the world and figure out how do we befriend this heart that we don't really like, that we do want to deny, that we want to blame on someone else or that we feel shame about, how do we embrace it and say, I know you are here for a reason and I haven't been listening to you for a very long time and I want to listen to you and I want to get to know you and I want want to invite you into this space and let's figure out how you can be here in a way that is not destructive, yeah. but you're still here. And so my thinking eventually really came around to that through the benefit of having done a lot of exploration with other individuals. And then of course the, the self-work, because I have a bias against asking anyone to do anything that I haven't done
0: yet myself.
1: Done so, Yeah.
0: Mm, there's mm. so, so much I want to unpack here, Val. Um, <laughs> so m- perhaps I'll, I'll just start with inviting you to, to share a bit with us on what causes fallback, because what I'm, what I'm hearing is, and I know you've discovered some of the triggers and and mm. why do we even get to those very immature places in ourselves? But what mm. I also hear you say is, the way forward is not to reject those aspects of ourselves; yes. is to embrace them in in certain ways, which I'd love to explore. So maybe if we kind of split split this into to start with, what triggers it? How how, how mm-hmm. can we anticipate that we're gonna get into those fallback moments? Are there ways to know that it's coming, that the storm mm-hmm. is coming? That perhaps if we if we know about them, it, it would help us a bit in, in not being caught completely by surprise. Um, That we find ourselves in those moments of, yeah, um, just, I I, I feel like calling them immaturity, maybe there are better ways to label what what that is, Um, not our best self, kind of.
1: Yeah. Um, well, and I think when I hear you say immaturity, you know, we talk about developmental maturity. It's not. I think when when I see my son who's just turned thirteen behaving immaturely, you know, it's a stages of ego maturity of different kinds of maturity. So I'm not taking yeah. So immaturity it in, that way. in the
0: sense that it's not is not a, a the maturity that you would expect from the adult that yes. you are in that moment. Um, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly how I'm taking it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So
1: I think that you point to something really important, which is um, I, I did find in my research these overarching triggers for fallback. And so just knowing what those might be, I think, gives us a heads up, I'm walking into a situation that may be a trigger for fallback, and then there's another level where we come to know ourselves and what our our specific triggers are, and then we can be more at the ready as we walk into the scenes of our own lives that we know tend to to pull us back in the grip into a smaller space in, in our development. So the overarching triggers that I found um, are include contextual gravitational pulls. So we've just come through the holidays. A lot of us are spending time with family, perhaps after several years, not because of the pandemic. And, um, And most people can relate to going home to their family of origin and being in that physical space Um, being around those people who actually knew us when we were at an earlier space in our development and not being able to show up with our full capacities, almost being like we were that 16 year old Mm. child, even though we have our own 16 year old children or, and we have these careers and we have accomplished things and we have our own lives, but we feel small in those spaces. And like, we're not able to bring the fullness of our capacities And so we talked before about the developmental center of gravity and and these kind of triggers of which the going home example is one um, are contextual gravitational pools where we go into spaces with people who's um, in systems Organizations where the developmental um, stage of those organizations because or systems or relationships, because just like individuals have developmental capacity, so do systems, relationships, teams, organizations, and they're Um, less mature, less developed. They're an earlier uh, developmental stage than what we may be. And when we walk into those spaces, the gravitational pull pulls us back to where either those spaces are, where they expect us to be, or where we were when we encountered those spaces to begin with.
0: Yeah. So we, we end up, what you're saying is we end up almost playing that role that is mm-hmm. um, expected of us in that context. Unconsciously, we just go to that place. I might go to my teenage self when I'm at home with my parents. And actually, <laughs> uh, that, that resonates so deeply. And I'm sure I'm not the only person in my 40s <laughs> who feels uh, like they're 16 and acting 16 when they go back home. Um, but it happens at work as well. And and it mm-hmm. reminds me of I've got a, a friend who was talking about uh, a boss that she worked for, where she felt in relation to that person, she was becoming a child, she was just not mm-hmm. able to find her voice and be the mature person that she was. Um, in the context of the relationship with that person and in the cultural context of the specific organization she was working for. So mm-hmm. that would be the what you're referring to as the, the gravitational pull of a certain culture or a certain context where we revert to a certain type of behavior that does not really bring out the full capacities that we know we have.
1: Exactly. That's a great example. I mean, we are... We are um embraced when we we are um, encouraged almost to show up. We are accepted, we are expected to be a certain way. And so even if we have... Uh, these more complex capacities, it takes a lot for us to to kind of pull out of that gravitational pull of that space of the expectations for where we're going to be. Um, So yes, that's great. That happens a lot in organizations. I think that, you know, maybe in other areas of our lives and other settings, we can show up with a certain amount of capacities, but we go into our workplaces and they don't welcome that part of us that is bigger, more expansive, more, um, seeing across perspectives. And then we, we get, it, it's just easier to just yep. settle into what is the what is the expected. gravitational level. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. So that is one of the big, big meta triggers. Let's call them
1: a uh, fallback. Yes. Are yep. there others? That's great.
0: Yes. There
1: are others. And another one that is somewhat connected is uh, challenges to identity. So when we are unable to be seen or to see ourselves as we are accustomed to being seen or seeing ourselves, if we encounter some kind of disorienting dilemma that upsets the way that we, um, our worldview, the way that we have known things to be, uh, these can be massive challenges to our identity. I think a lot of this happened during the pandemic when we saw ourselves in a certain way. I saw myself as someone who was a a pretty capable educator of other humans as long as they were adults. (laughs) is <laughs> when my children came home and I effectively was kind of the at-home teacher, I I didn't, I wasn't good at that. And and I also wasn't being seen by other people the way I was accustomed to being seen as capable. I remember not much
0: validation from the, <laughs> no. from the kids being
1: homeschooled. <laughs> oh my goodness. I remember my daughter was a kindergartner at the time and um, we were, she was trying to learn how to write her letters. And I don't know how to teach a five-year-old to write their letters. Like this is not something I was trained in, nothing that I ever wanted to know how to do. Um, but we had talked about the letter house and what let, what letters go up to the second floor of the letter house and which ones go into the basement. And we, I think that we had it all under control. And then she'd go and write another letter that was supposed to go up to the second floor of the letter house that did not. And I was wondering, why did we know this like two minutes ago? And we don't know this at this moment. And so I was getting impatient around this and around my daughter around this and, you know kept pushing our practice makes perfect, but let's keep practicing this. Let's write this letter over and over again. And she was getting more and more upset. And this is me in my own falling back space saying, no, 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 but, but we need to get this right. We need to get this right. Even though I could see this was not helpful in the moment to her or to me. And at some point she said, Um, can't daddy teach me? Wasn't he a a teacher? And I thought, oh my gosh, I was destroyed because he wasn't, but I was, albeit two adults. (laughs) And my daughter was looking for any substitute that might be better than how I was showing up at the time. And I just thought, I can't be seen the way that I, I need want desire to be seen in this moment and that perpetuated my going back into this smaller space
0: yeah oh that's I'm I'm sure so many parents out there who've played <laughs> this role um will will have lived some version of that fallback hmm. and and I went as you were talking I was kind of um Recalling my own professional version of uh, of that identity disorienting dilemma when I went from um, facilitation, coaching, consulting into research, mm. and for a year I didn't I didn't work. I just focused on being a PhD student and learning mm. and, and researching and feeling so, so bad at it and mm. feeling like all of my previously acquired expertise and all the validation that I had gotten so many yes. years for my work from clients suddenly disappeared. And I was this mm. this newbie at this thing that felt so daunting. And, and I can recall a lot of, fallback moments, both internally in my self-esteem and my capacity to pick myself back up when things didn't go my way, but also in my behavior towards other people around me. I was snappy. Mm -hmm. I was annoyed. I was impatient with my family. It spilled over in other aspects of my life because I didn't feel like I knew who I was anymore. So this challenge to our sense of who we are can also trigger Mm -hmm. the spillover effect um, Mm -hmm. and, and put us into fallback
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. I think that's a great example. And it does show up in all areas of our lives. Um, Another, uh, another um, trigger, which I I always, I really need to come up with a better name for this. But now I've written this book, and I've called it ordinary triggers in the book. And so I guess forever, it's just going to be ordinary triggers until the next book comes out. But there's got to be a better name for that. But there are these just ordinary triggers of life, too, um, that you know, conspire against us or we conspire against ourselves. For me, I need to eat. I need to have snacks, you know, and when I don't have, when I'm hungry, when I haven't had enough sleep, when I am stressed, when I am jet lagged, when I, gosh, I don't know, any number of things that are just like the ordinary factors of life, but they calls me and I would say um, I I usually can bring a different version of myself with even these ordinary triggers at play to uh, the show that I'm performing in. Okay. So the outside world. But when I come into my normal space of my family, I let that go. And all of these triggers just like pull me back. And I, it's like I don't have any control over them other than to go get a snack or whatever. But, you know, they, they, being sick is another one. I mean, certainly something that we've, you know, been focused on a lot these few years. And, and I just don't have that capacity to bring myself. And maybe it is because I've been on the show, you know, putting my best self forward in, in spite of all of this, and I'm just depleted. Yeah. But these ordinary triggers really have a powerful pull on us, even if um they are just ordinary.
0: Yeah. So it's a bit like a, a death by a thousand cuts kind of mechanism where you've got <laughs> you've got those small things that individually mm. might not amount to much but when they pile up they take a toll on you and and yeah. what I'm hearing you say is you might hold it together in the outside world but then you might find yourself falling into the biggest fallback when you're back home safely um kind of downloading all of that stuff which might explain why sometimes we do get home after a long day or we've been home for the whole day working from yes. home but at the end of the day all the um, the demons come out. It happens in Mm. kids a lot. Um, I've noticed that (laughs) when they've been in school and they've been well-behaved and kind of doing their best, but then they come home and all hell breaks loose and you know all their self-control is gone and parents go you know what did I do wrong this kid was yes. perfectly behaved until an hour ago when I picked them up from school and now what's going on is is there yes. something I'm doing wrong and perhaps this is encouraging in a sense to know there's nothing you're doing wrong it's just they're safe and they're just downloading they're allowing themselves to get into their own version of the fallback uh, just like well, I- we do adults as well.
1: I think that's true. And I think it just feels like I've had that experience with my own children. They're great with the nanny. And then I come and pick them up and I, they have a throwdown. And I think, what is wrong with me that they can't? And that's it. You know, what is wrong with me that they they aren't loving and, you know, sweet and all of those things. And it's not in anything's wrong with anyone. They feel safe. They feel like I'm not going to leave them on the side of the road. I might think about leaving them on the side of the road, but ultimately I'm not going to leave my children on the side of the road. And they know that, you know, they, they know that. And I think we know that, uh, with our families as well, that this is a safe place
0: to bring,
1: uh, ourselves when we just don't have the resources anymore.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So those ordinary triggers can definitely cause or or favor the conditions Mm -hmm. for us to not show up as our best selves. Yes, yes. And then
1: there's one more that is actually what I consider kind of the stickiest wicket of all of the triggers for fallback. And then that is unresolved trauma. So this is um, when we experience Something earlier in our lives, earlier in our development that we are not capable of making sense of, of resolving, of working through at that um, time, at that with our the capacities that we have at hand. And as a result, That part of self gets bracketed off and stays at that point in our development while the rest of us kind of moves along, moves forward. And the idea is that as we continue to grow and develop and be able to take on more perspectives to see more complexity, that we can go back and meet that bracketed off part of self and resolve um, this, the trauma that happened um, at that earlier part in our develop, point in our development. And I think that we can to a certain extent, but I think it is really challenging to do that um, it's just because there's so much that is, is tied up in the trauma and it may not have even felt like trauma at the time, but how that presents is if I encounter someone or something that resembles that earlier trauma, it just takes me immediately back to that space. And for mm-hmm. me, that shows up. I mean, I have a, a particular character that I've named terror around um, an un. Unrese- trauma, this smaller space that I go to and, um, my jaw clenches and my fist clench, and I am completely rigid in my body, which is a clue to me that I am in the fallback and something yeah. to pay attention to. But even when I can notice that I'm in that because of all of these physical clues happening around me and within me, I still struggle to get out of fallback triggered by unresolved trauma.
0: Yeah, and th- there's a, there has been a one one moment in in my own relationship with my husband when we had such a striking example of what you're describing here, where behaviors that you don't associate with anything, the other person associates with something very negative for them, yes. and they throw them into fallback. So I had this habit of just shouting his name from one end of the house and he was at the Mm. other end and I was just too lazy to walk over there. So I would, you know, (laughs) shout something and he would always react to that behavior. He he would get very, very upset. And it took us years to figure out what was happening. Uh, And it took me a moment of clarity to ask, what, what is it about me raising my voice yeah. um, that, that triggers you so much? And he had not actually consciously thought about it until I asked. And he said, you know what I realized in my childhood when I was, when I heard my name on a shouted tone from the other end of the house, that always meant I was in trouble and mm. there was punishment coming. So for me, it just creates this reaction of fight or flight, which was mm-hmm. usually fight um, pushback. And it just changed. It was such an example of a a small minor thing that would always become a an annoyance in our relationship. And we never knew we didn't know why until we had that that clarifying conversation. Um, And I'm sure there are so many other examples. So we've got all of these triggers, right, Um, that that can cause us to go into fallback and Mm -hmm. you did mention the word character and I'd love to zoom in on that because it kind of takes us into that second part of this exploration around what do we do with it Mm -hmm. we we might realize we're getting into that space and mm-hmm. I know uh, the, the name of the book um, has mm-hmm. come from theater and from this idea that those fallback behaviors can actually become characters we might not necessarily like, but there's a relationship to be explored there with, with those characters. So could you tell us a bit more about how how you came to associate those fallback behaviors with, with characters from theater and how that connection actually helps us make sense of and find ways out, uh, turning Mm. this, this fallback, uh, phenomenon into opportunities for growth. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, that
1: was so serendipitous all along the way, actually coming into theater as a tool, You're thinking of ourselves as this kind of an ensemble of characters to um, explore our, our both our fallen back characters and our unifying flow aspirational characters as well. Um, so I'll just start with the name of the book is Leaving the Ghost Light Burning. And the ghost light is comes from theater lore, actually. And so in theaters around the world, a single light bulb is left burning on stages when the theaters are dark. And the, the purpose of this light is one superstition, because there's this theater superstition that the spirits of the theater, when... Uh, if they think that the theater has been abandoned will come on stage and cause mischief. And so if a light is left on, it invites those spirits to come and play and not be destructive. Um, There's a more practical reason also for the light being left on the stage when the theater is dark. And that's if someone were to wander onto the stage into the darkness, they could easily tumble off into the pit and, Um, and be hurt, and, you know, cause other kinds of destruction. And so I uh, encountered this concept of ghost light, um, when I was during the pandemic, and I received an email from our local theater saying, we're leaving the ghost light burning for you. And I had to go look into that. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is exactly what happens in fallback. When we try to push those parts of self I used to think of it. How can I lock them backstage? When we try to do that, they're just going to find a way in and they're going to cause destruction and harm and um, of not only ourselves, but others. And so this welcoming in of the spirits and inviting them to step into the illumination and to play and to read their lines and to, you know, to to show us what it is they're trying to show us has been a really um, important visual um, aspect of my understanding fallback. But I came to start thinking about theater as, as a method for how we might um, access a part of self that we really usually don't want to access. Back in, I think it was 2016, and my friend and colleague, Fred Jones, was um, hosting a, a session at a conference, and he mentioned this idea of um the stage page, so that we do have this ensemble of characters and we have the options to bring those forward, to cast them in the scenes of our lives, and to think about when they just come on the stage. And I thought this might be really helpful in allowing people a playful space that doesn't feel like I am awful. I am, you know, like I've totally. Um, torn down the set. That's true. They're, I'm not saying we're rejecting those parts of self, but, but we have the, the, the part of Valerie that comes on stage and tears things apart. And we also have the part of Valerie that comes forward and is, you know, creates beautiful things and is loving and welcoming and all of that. And, you know, to think that we are just this one enduring self isn't true. And I think that that's Going back to how we started the conversation, this idea that development is the stairway to heaven, and once we have these capacities, we always have them, and we are this set person, it, distinct, and you know that we don't have um, multiple aspects of self that are really the true fullness of us. It just it it it's not. Um, authentic it's not real it's not you know when you think about your own lived experience that's just not how things are and so if we can see that we are we do sometimes show up smaller more constricted more punitive more um perfection oriented, no matter what our intention in that situation is. And sometimes we show up in our, with our full capacities and are able to meet our intentions. If we can see these parts of self, then, um, then we're able to not feel so much shame when I think when, when one part of self is trying to be, um, I don't even want to say trying to be because that's not really a true representation when when a part of self is giving voice in a way that may not be helpful.
0: Yeah. Um yeah. So would it almost be um useful to to imagine development as an evolution in the cast of characters that we mm-hmm. are so instead of thinking we're just this one person we're actually this multitude of of characters some of them more full of light some of them more full of dark many of them are in between mm-hmm. but then as you grow through these stages perhaps you've got more access to your full cast of characters or more mm-hmm. choice of how to help them work together in better ways, and you might have a bit more self compassion or develop more self compassion
1: mm-hmm. for
0: those characters you don't necessarily like. Um, I've, I've particularly i've got i've got a character that i'm i'm struggling with a lot. Which my daughter, interesting how kids have this intuition. Um, she actually has a name for that character. She calls it Miss Bossy Boots. um I can't even remember when it started but there was a moment and in certain moments when I behave in a certain way only then she calls me Miss Bossy Boots so she Mm. recognizes that character when it comes out and she's like you're Miss Bossy Boots now mom um and I hate Miss Bossy Boots I just don't like her Mm. I don't like you know and it's everything is in the name I don't even have to tell you what Miss Bossy Mm. Boots does or how she behaves Um, but just listening to you now I was thinking you know are there ways to develop a more compassionate relationship Mm -hmm. with Miss Bossy Boots and what what does she have to to teach me instead of I'm always trying to suppress repress whatever get rid of her Um, yeah I so I I, before you introduce
1: Miss Bossy Boots, which I love. Um, you painted this beautiful picture of what development could be like as this yeah. cast of characters and everything. I just want to uh, stop for a minute and just recognize the brilliance of that. I just think that's a lovely way to conceptualize development and how uh, in a really full color way, you know, not like in this, you um, you know, single dimension, but in the multi-dimensionality of how we grow and change and that grow. When I say grow, I don't mean just bigger, but like we, as you said, as we grow, we encompass all of it, the more shadowy bits, the, the lighter bits, the, you know, and we move them together, you know, my A lot of what I think about uh, in terms of what what might we do with this, if we're not locking our fallback characters backstage, what are we doing with them? We're trying to figure out how do they dance together best in order to meet their intentions, your intentions, their intentions. All of it is together, right? So, um, So to your point about Miss Bossy Boots, you know, the... The compassion for that part of self, that smaller part of self that seems to demand to be on the stage at that point that you just think, oh, I just want to deny that. And please don't call me that. Um, just inquiring into it just like you did with your husband around what does this mean to you? what does what is this about for you but inquiring into again in keeping with the theater metaphor, what is the backstory on this character when Miss Bossy Boots comes on stage, you know what other scenes have you seen Miss Bossy Boots in? What's the original scene? What's the origin story of this character? And this, when when I say character, this part of you,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: and what feels at risk in those moments when she is coming on the scene with your daughter, what is yep. she there in protection of? Like that, just this inquiry. And you mentioned before when you told that story about your husband that you know it it wasn't a conscious thing at when when you yelled across the house. He wasn't thinking when my when I was getting in trouble when I was little. This is I would I knew that I was going to because I was yelled at. We just don't think about that, and so once we actually do connect to, wait, Miss Bossy Boots is showing up right now, and and we've come to know that Miss Bossy Boots originated. At this point in our lives, and these are the scenes. So back to, you know, there are these overarching triggers, but what are our own personal scenes that seem to elicit, to cue onto the stage, these smaller characters, these fallen back characters? Um, Then we are more apt to notice when they are likely to come on a scene in the future. And we also, when we can inquire into, okay, well, what is at risk to me in this moment? then we can articulate that better. So maybe instead of being Miss Bossy Boots with your daughter, you can say, you know, I, I feel a little bit out of control when I walk in your room and there are clothes all over the floor. And, it, you know, and I I feel um, uh, like I need a space of calm and I need your help instead of Get those clothes off the floor.
0: Like I told yeah. you five times to clean up, uh, that kind of thing. I um, think uh, there, there might be an opportunity for people listening to us now, which I think is, is something I'd love to create as much as we possibly can on the podcast. Those moments when people can stop and maybe, you know, mm-hmm. pause the whole thing. And mm-hmm. take a moment to reflect on, you know, those questions you just asked are such valuable questions that anybody can ask about their own version of Miss Bossy Boots, whatever that mm-hmm. is. And where does this character show up? Does it have a name? What's its origin story? What is it trying to protect or defend? Um, mm-hmm. and, and perhaps even, you know, n- noting what are our top two or three such characters that, that show up unbidden, unwanted, might wreak a bit of havoc if we don't uh, acknowledge them. And even yes. if we have never done that before, can we spot them? Mm-hmm. What are they? Where do they show up? Mm-hmm. So I'd really encourage people, if if they have time, to either pause and think uh, if they can't write. But if they actually have time and they're in a place where they can jot down some notes, this could be a good time to do it. I love that invitation. Mm so what would you if you if we zoom out well um what would a a lifelong practice almost of of befriending all our characters um and I know that you've put together a, a course um that is launching and you're going to invite people in in doing this work and I'll mm-hmm. post resources to all of these amazing things that you're working on in the podcast page what what would be some you know nuggets of wisdom for people mm-hmm. uh, who who want to because if I if my understanding of this work is right this is not a one-off it's not a one moment of reflection one moment of identifying miss bossy boots it's it's more of a journey it's more of a process where we Mm -hmm. don't expect these characters to ever go away but we're working on our relationship with them as an ongoing practice Mm -hmm. so what have you learned in your own experience of both researching them but also living living your own Mm -hmm. research around what does that long long form long-term practice look like Yeah, I love the idea. And
1: I talk about it often as a practice, exactly what you're saying. We and I want to state again, that we are never going to get back rid of our fallback characters, we're not going to lock them backstage. And I think that that is dangerous uh, to do. I've tried for many, many years. And let me just tell you, they they know how to unlock the door, bash down the door, whatever it happens to be, and then they come out even more destructive. So So the the practice is really in noticing and not doing the thing that you and I described that is our first response, you know, the pushing away, the denying me through blaming someone else initially, and then having the shame within myself, but really by coming to the practice as one of compassion, as you noted, for the full ensemble of self that, um that we have available to us and um so it's hard we we both talked about how we can we sometimes we can notice in the moment that we are going in into this fallen back space sometimes we can stop it more often than not we notice it and it's like there you still can't grasp other capacities you know other options so it may only be after the fact that that you can can make those shifts. But the one of the biggest, um, what I think is one of the linchpins in this whole coming into relationship with your fallback is even beginning to notice that it's happening because we do so often just deny, say, "Oh, that was a circumstance. That was just a moment. That's not me." But to to notice and to claim, yes, that is me. That is a part of me. That is one of my characters. And once we notice, then we can notice more frequently. So a really simple, I think, practice, I say simple, but it does. As a practice, it becomes easier. I think so often we um, we don't think about what our intentions are for a relationship, for the scenes of our lives, for a meeting, for um, an interaction, and Therefore, when we don't meet our intentions, we don't notice that we don't meet our intentions, right? Yeah. So if we can just, in, you know, I'm a, a we're in the new year and i'm not a believer in myself in new year's resolutions but i am a believer in setting intentions so what are that my intentions in my life in my relationships in my career in the way i am in the world with other people and then when we're when we make those explicit we're more apt to notice when we are not showing up in alignment with those intentions. And so I refer to this as minding the gap, minding the gap between the way that we want to be showing up in the world and the way that we actually are. So just a simple practice of setting intentions for When you walk, you go down to dinner with your family, who do I want to be at the dinner table with my family? And then noticing if you are not actually showing up in that way. And then that's the prompt to do this greater reflection on, okay, Miss Bossy Boots, is telling my daughter to wipe her face, to get her elbows off the table, to not be scooched down in the chair. Do you see that I ha- might have a little moss- Miss Mossy boots in me too? <laughs> um, yeah. And also what's that about for me? You know, where did, where did this come from within me and what feels at risk just because my daughter is not sitting upright. And I would say to you that One is a challenge to my identity. If she goes out and has dinner at someone else's home and is slouched down in her seat or has food all over her face, then what kind of parent must I be? You know, there's that part of it. Right. But it also comes probably from a little unresolved trauma of having a a much more rigid dinner table set of manners in my upbringing than my children have been willing to adopt. (laughs) themselves so connecting into that what is it it may seem like such a little thing but it often has much deeper roots to how we make sense of ourselves in the world or have and even to think about that's an old storyline that maybe doesn't apply anymore to
0: my reality yeah does that still hold true is it still serving me in any way
1: Right. So that's another great question to ask, you know, like how true is this for 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 where I am now and the relationship that I want to have with my daughter? Um, And then to your point in terms of practices, like how do we see this through the more we notice and the more we reflect on it through the sets of questions, the more we begin to identify these overarching triggers that may send us into fallback and then the specific ones that you know are unique to us. Then, um, then we'll be more apt to think, start thinking about when we walk into the scenes of our lives, who is most likely to be cast in those scenes by default, and who actually really needs to be there, and how might you cast co-stars that will be helpful to each yeah. other and Um, in meeting the intentions for the scene. Like you don't want to get rid of those fallen back characters. You want to find out what they're there for. Like, what do you think is going to happen on this scene that is going to be so bad? Okay, I've heard you and I need that piece of information and I need you to kind of stand off to the side and not like do the solo act here. I need these other characters to come in as well. And also to start to design the set as much as you're able to, to be supportive of those characters that you need to be there coming on the scene and being able to deliver the lines that that they need to deliver in order to meet your intentions. So you can just more thoughtfully it, it really is a practice you rehearse it and then you show up to it and then you do a review on yourself like how did that go and, yeah. and you know were the lines um equally read or did was this person more prominent how did the audience react you know Henry <laughs> re- what about the characters that are not not within me how did they respond to this and then you you know you take all that information in I, I want to say one more thing. Um, related to your brilliant depiction of development as it's it, um, ever more embracing and compassion offering set of characters. Um, it is figuring out who to cast to get together, figuring out who is all on the scene. It's often about not, um, not just putting a character off to the side, more and more, you know, like I've heard what you said. And so you can stand over here. You don't have to take center stage, but how do we grow though? How do we develop those characters? You know, how do those characters develop and become a, um, a more mature, a a not typecast character, but one, a character with more range that, that, um, can be more present in the scenes of your lives in a way that's not destructive yeah i i so
0: so love this this idea you're introducing of almost the conscious casting of the characters as Mm. i i hear it but also how can you develop each character can miss bossy boots become more than she is in a sense Mm. um where yeah it's it's not like this stereotype of the controlling annoyed mom but can Mm. i can i develop her can i grow her and then who else needs to come into that scene so that mm. that in itself might be perhaps an interesting reflective question for people. What What might be those repetitive scenes in your own lives where you yeah. see the scene playing over and over again in the mm. same way, in a way you might not like with characters who take over the stage without mm. you consciously inviting them to take over the stage? Mm-hmm. Um, be it at work or at home and who do you want to bring into those scenes and how might those characters who are now taking center stage themselves grow or evolve mm-hmm. in a new way there's yeah. there's, yeah so much food for thought in all of this Val it's
1: there's there's just so much possibility I, I think I just you asked about the course and I So I offer a course called uh, Leaving the Ghost Light Burning, which is the name of the book as well. But it's a six week course. And um, in both the book and in the course, you're invited into the work because you know, all of this uh, sprang from this concept of adult development and and the moving forward and the theory and all of that. But I believe deeply that, uh, you know, uh, the value of a theory is in its usefulness. And can we actually walk around in the theory and see how it fits? And, you know, where does it feel constricting and where doesn't it? And, you know, the, the work of actually finding yourself in the theory, the theory of adult development, the theory of fallback, Um, it is work and I'm inviting people into work that usually, you know, these are the shadowy dark parts of self that we really want to keep locked in the closet. And it's scary to say, let's bring them out into the light and see what they really look like and what they're about. Um, And I, I think I just, there's such a gift that can come from not doing the locking in the closet and not pretending that we are this, um, it developed, you know, most, um, high order thinking, you know, perspective take, that's a part of who we are. And then there's all this other beautiful richness that comes from the fullness of us. And we're missing out when we're trying to keep that part out of the light. Um, so, if we can come to know the fullness of ourselves and these parts that feel small, but boy, they carry such, bring such beautiful lessons. There's such a gift in that, that allows us to live into the fullness of who we are, the fullness of our development um, for ourselves, but in our relationships with others. And so in the book, Yeah, there are um, tools that are offered, practices, questions that um, folks can find themselves in this space of what does this fallback look like and feel like and present as for me? And then the six-week course is an invitation to really deepen that practice um, over time, again, back to the practice aspect of it that it becomes more a habit. You, you referenced how, you know, I've been in this work for all this time and it is a part of my life because I do believe in putting myself in, um, doing the work on myself. And so it has become an ever-present aspect of my parenting, of my um, marriage, of my teaching, of my research, of my professional life. It is present to me all the time. It is a practice, but it doesn't become that when we just to kind of do a one-off exploration. Hopefully your invitation to pause in the middle of the podcast is a beginning invitation that people will want to take up as a practice. Ongoingly as they reflect on
0: who's coming on the scenes of their lives. No, I'm I'm truly hoping so. And, and I'm hoping people will buy the book and read this wonderful book. Um, leaving the ghost light burning, illuminating fallback in embrace of the fullness of you. And you've spoken of fullness, and I hope people have a better understanding of what the fullness. Actually means. Um, I hope they read it as I have read it. Um, I was sharing with you before we started the recording that I, I genuinely felt I savored it um, because it, it invites you to stop and really think. Um, and I, it, in a sense, it's a book, but it's also a workbook and it's also a journal <laughs> or a journaling invitation. Mm. Um, And of course, the the course is a deepening of that. But I do deeply hope that um, this work is gonna get out more and more into the world because I I feel we're so almost obsessed with improving ourselves. And Mm. that improvement becomes sometimes a tyranny of improvement, which involves killing off all of those characters we don't like. Um, And there's an invitation in in your research and your work to actually befriend those characters and and Mm. honor them for the value that they have brought us and continue to bring us um, and work with them instead of against them and perhaps discover a more colorful, multifaceted, Mm. complex, beautiful way of being uh, that incorporates Mm. all of these aspects of ourselves instead of picking just what we think is appropriate, or what we think we like. So I I
1: think that's a, a a beautiful hope as well and I think I just want to highlight one other thing that you came across in your own lovely illuminating research with individuals about how they grow and when they don't, and and that is the and I think it's such an important aspect of uh, coming into relationship with our fallback, and that is in the acceptance piece, the naming, the claiming, the smaller parts of self when we do not have it figured out, when we are not able to bring um, the 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 best parts of self. Um, that acceptance of oneself is so aided when other people can see us in our fullness and accept us. And I think that's one of the findings that you had in your own research around being able to name when we, when we don't have these capacities, when we don't have it figured out and when we didn't show up in a way that met our intentions with other people and reflect on it and within ourselves, but with others to be seen in that space and to feel like we could be. And that similarly, if we have someone who we can share that part of self with and fall back, and that's, I think one of the benefits of the course, the workshop itself is that you were going through this in relationship with other people. And not only the being seen just in general and held in compassion, but that you can see yourself in other people and they can see themselves in you big and small, right? And the full scope. And you think, I thought that was just me, but no, I have because at least I have Miss Bossy boots too. And when I can see Miss Bossy boots in you and I can love you for that. It's a part that I don't love me and yeah. me as much, but if I can love you and your Miss Bossy Boots, then I need to be
0: able, I must be able to love myself, that part of myself. Yeah, to turn towards your own Miss Bossy Boots with more compassion, which speaks a it, lot about the value of having our, our fallback partners, really, finding those people mm-hmm. who can, we we can talk about these aspects of self with, or who can witness us at our worst and still accept us. Yes, um, and yes. in turn, we do the same for them.
1: And I think that from an organizational and leadership perspective, that's so incredibly important, too. And uh, your uh, podcast guest in December, Marty Hughes, I think, spoke beautifully to how he came to his team and shared you know, not just the triumphs. And this is where I, you know, showed up spectacularly, the part of self that we want to scream from the rooftops, but the parts where we really don't want people to see us, but he thought it was so important for him to bring that aspect to his team and to make that known. And in our sharing and our stepping courageously, but vulnerably into the space of, I do not always show up consistently in a way that I want to, or that I want you to see me as, then we invite other people to share that part of themselves, to bring that part of themselves, but also invite them to bring, to figure out what is the bigger, what are the spaces that invite the bigger selves um, from an organizational perspective. And I think that's incredibly important.
0: Oh, Val, thank you so, so much for opening up all of these perspectives and um, I, I feel it's so hard for me to bring this conversation to an end because I, I wanted to continue and perhaps you know if people come up with their own questions or inquiries there we might we might dream up another another one or a follow-up to this one um, but I just you know as we wrap it up for now um, I just want to tell you how grateful I am The work that you do in the world. And Mm. I believe it's changed my life and my understanding of how I grew up as a human being. Uh, And I know I'm not alone in this. Mm. So I will maybe close with one last question because you spoke about intentions. What is you're on the journey and you continue to do this work and walk Mm. your talk? What's your intention for this year? Is there something that you're kind of yeah, looking at it as a as an intention you hold for yourself, for your own growth. Yeah. And perhaps people might reflect on what their intention is for their own becoming this year. Well, I
1: thank you for that invitation. I think it's a beautiful invitation to all of us to really connect to um, what is true for us or what do we want? What do we hope is true for us? Um, I I have a carrying forward intention because I still haven't uh, consistently gotten there. And that is to say yes to the things that make my heart sing, that feel true and authentic to me and not the things that I think I should say yes to. Yes, yeah, so that is that is a carrying forward intention for me in all aspects of my life to to just stay true to myself and um and and what what
0: feels true to me. I uh, there was a big sigh <laughs> from me when when I heard that because um, yes. That is, that is an intention I share in, in my own way. And at the end of every year, I'm kind of going, have I done it? Have I done it enough? And yes, uh, I'll I'll take some of that for my own reflection going forward. And Can I ask you, you what um, your intention is? Oh, <laughs> um, yes. I've actually not, um, not pondered it enough. I think. Um, my my intention is uh, to pace myself mm-hmm. this year. It's been a lot on my mind. I feel like I've been running and running and trying to do so much. Mm-hmm. And even this conversation has, has brought a lot of the being aspects uh, to the forefront of my mind. Just mm-hmm. thinking of, am I actually slowing down enough to not do anything to be able to have space to notice? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the, the, the gap to mind, the gap you were talking about, I really hold this intention of minding the gap this year. And the only way to do it is to purposefully slow down and choose to not do, even when the compulsion of doing one more thing Mm -hmm. kicks in. Oh, and thank you for, (laughs) it's (laughs) taken me, it's taken me out of my comfort zone to kind of even verbalize that it's uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. It's uncomfortable to acknowledge it. But um is definitely I share there. that. You do? Mm, I do. I absolutely do. So it's
1: it's fun to hear each other's and to think, yeah, yeah, I could use a little of that too. Mm. So well, thank you for having me. This has been such a fun opportunity to explore with you. And I'm grateful for you and the beautiful work that you do and Um, can't wait to see how it manifests in the world in the coming year
0: oh likewise deep gratitude Val and inviting people to ponder what their intentions are and hopefully they'll they'll gain some good reflection from our conversation thank you so much for being with me Val thank you Alice Thank you for listening to this conversation, which I, for one, uh, would have loved to keep on going, so perhaps there will be a follow-up to it. I do hope you've taken as much out of Valerie Lipsay's wisdom as I have. And the time is right, as we are at the beginning of the year, for some deeper reflection I do hope some of the questions we've explored together will create opportunities for you to reflect on your own moments of fallback, what triggers it and what are some of your characters that you would like to get to know better or even befriend as you step further into this new year. If you'd like to explore Valerie's work in more depth, I highly recommend her wonderful book, Leaving the Ghost Light Burning as well as the course by the same name. There are two cohorts, uh, one starting soon and one starting later on in the year. I'll put the details on all of her work in the podcast notes. So do have a look and do get back to me with your comments and your own reflections. I'm always keen to hear how these conversations are landing for you. Until next time, stay awake, stay conscious and stay wise.